You have reached a phone call from Paul, a literary hub podcast. To hear more, visit lethub.com. Paul Holden Graber's conversation with Joyce Carol Oates. Hello, is this Joyce Carol Oates? Yes. Hello, I'm so happy to be speaking to you. Well, thank you. Did my landline not ring? Um, I don't know. I tried this number alone. Would you prefer me to call the other number? No, this is all right. This is fine. Which, whichever you prefer. I'm happy, I'm happy to call the other one if it's more comfortable. So if you can hear me, that's good. I can hear you very well. Am I not calling a landline now? No, this is a cell phone. So let me call your landline. Is that the 510 number? You know, it doesn't matter. This is really fine. I can hear you quite well. And I can hear you very well. Do you use the phone a lot? No, not really. It's, it's strange how the phone has become tremendously exotic. Yes, that's so true. I used to talk on the telephone many times a day. But what do you think it is? Because, I mean, for me, um, the grain of the voice is so important. Um, you know, to, to, but what, 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 why, why have we abandoned it and what have we abandoned by abandoning it? Well, there's the rise of email and the uh, facility of email. One can send an email message at any time. Whereas a telephone call could be interrupting someone. It is interrupting, but at the same time, it also brings you close to them in a way that that message, electronic messages don't seem to, in some sense. Well, I'll... that's so true. That's true. I had only one friend who was calling me from time to time. He passed away last year, so now... I have no friends who call me. Well, you see, you have you have this phone call from Paul, and and I I I, <laughs> I, I enjoy actually speaking on the phone because I I enjoy the silences. I enjoy the fact that it's something we don't do anymore very much, and so all kinds of things happen on the phone that may not happen in an email. One also gets a sense of um, of a reaction. A reaction, perhaps, to to words. A reaction, perhaps, to tone. And um, Joyce, in 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 rereading recently the Paris Review um, interview with you, there was one line that stuck out with me that I noted down. I I wonder what it means to you now. I think it's 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 glorious. You say. The mere passage of time makes us all exiles. Well, I definitely feel that way. Going back home to one's old home, hometown, walking along the old streets, seeing the old school, the old house, you, you feel such an estrangement because of time. Yes. And and you you you've you've done that trip quite recently of go yeah. of going back. Well, I've gone back to my hometown, which yes. is in upstate New York many, many times over my life. But each time becomes more melancholy because more people have passed away and there are more changes. But that's the way life is. It's, and one has to accept that. 
Do you do you feel that way about certain books that that you you go back to, and that feel so utterly different and perhaps changed? Though of course, you know better than than anybody that the books haven't changed. It's it's we who have changed. Well, that's a that's a good point. I think that a work of art evolves in time. Also, that we look upon the. Uh, the paintings of antiquity and works of art of the past, we see them with new eyes now. For instance, if you are a woman, you, in recent decades, you become much more alert to how women are portrayed in art. I think when I was a little girl, when I was a young girl, I was really unquestioning and didn't see things in a sort of culturally critical way. But now when we look back, Upon the great work of the past, we see that there's a good deal of misogyny, either overt or covert. And so, those works of art and plays by even by a great artist like Shakespeare, they, in, a, in an odd way, they also evolve, even as we evolve. What 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 works in particular, aside from Shakespeare, do you feel have evolved for you in in ways that that make the work um, I, I don't know if, if the, 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 the right word would be more meaningful, because in a sense, works can be incredibly meaningful when we don't have the context. Well, that's true. I've taught so many great works of literature over a period of years that it's hard for me really to generalize. There are many texts that I've taught so many times like Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness, I, and I also used to teach Mark Twain's Huckleberry Finn a good deal. I've taught many poems of Emily Dickinson, and so forth. I've taught Faulkner. So I think going back and looking at those texts now, with younger, with students who are quite young compared to me, so now I am much older, and so it's it's interesting to see how how young people react to the texts that we took in a certain way. Do, do you feel the reaction has substantially changed? I think it probably has. I hear writing students now, and we look at literature from the point of view of the strategies of composition. In other words, we're not looking at literature for thematic purposes. We're not scrolling through to find something to be offended by. We're looking at works of art in terms of how they're constructed and created. So I could I can read a work of art that's actually um, misogynist or sexist, and I could admire it for the precision of the prose. I'm really not looking at the thematic content. If I, I teach Hemingway, for instance, and the, the sexism of Hemingway is imbued throughout his work, so it's everywhere. It's not necessarily blatant or even particularly offensive. He will call a man the man. He will call a woman the girl. It's sort of in the in the very prose is the sexism that's taken for granted that nobody ever questioned, I don't think, until recent years. Now, when I teach Hemingway, we we all notice that immediately. The students all notice that. They'll say, oh, 
the woman is called the girl and the man is called the man. No, they noticed that immediately, and so do I. But when I was 18, 18 years old, I don't think I noticed it. I tend to think of myself as a formalist. I mean, I have many ideas, and I have political ideas. A formalist, you said? I'm interested in the form, you, forms of literature. Yes. I'm, I'm interested in structure, sentences, whether they're simple sentences, declarative sentences, whether they're complex or compound. I'm, I'm looking, interested in the way punctuation is used. If I'm writing poetry or reading poetry, I'm interested in, in, the, in the white space. All those things to me are immensely exciting, thrilling, in a way that I think sexual politics is not any longer especially revealing to me. I mean, I, I, I know my own political beliefs, and I have strong convictions about politics, but that doesn't really interest me. I'm not interested in having my beliefs confirmed. I'm interested in experimental art, things that are different. I don't need to have my political beliefs confirmed because they're strong enough. So I can read passages from D.H. Lawrence that are politically incorrect in a very, you know, outrageous way. But I can take away from that the beauty of the prose, the velocity, the momentum, the drama, the use of adjectives, the use of adverbs. I can get a good deal of pleasure out of Many texts that I think some people would reject. And they might reject it even before really considering it because of um, the incorrectness, let us say, political or otherwise, that they feel is on the surface. Yes, I think it's an interesting subject. It right? really is. I mean, it's a subject, uh, Joyce, it's a subject I reckon with all the time now, you know, particularly since so many of the people, oh, I don't know how to call it, so many, let's say, of the people we considered heroes are now fallen. How do we, yes. uh, how do we appreciate, without naming even names, how do we appreciate their work? Because they still have a substantial a body of work, which is very often great work, and yes, I think so. Yes, yes. and 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 if we many, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, please. No, many, but many years ago, I wrote an essay on Shakespeare, Faulkner, D. H. Lawrence, maybe somebody else, showing <sighs> misogyny in the text. I mean, the blatant—it it takes your breath away. You know, the the hatred or the cliched hatred of women. But then I was also trying to get beyond that. If you are a feminist, you have to, you can't just deny yourself two-thirds of the world's works of art. Right. Very self-lacerating. Self, uh, so you have to find a way to recognize it very openly and to discount it and just see what's positive there. The, the dislike or distrust of women is another subject yes. that's tied in, as in with, with film noir. It's tied in with the supposed power of women, the power of women to destroy and distract men. So it's it's a different kind of of dislike or distrust than, than anti-Semitism. Yes, for sure. You were talking about. So I think uh, 
No, go ahead. I don't even know any Jews. It's just anti-Semitic because it's something they've inherited. Right. But everyone knows women. Every, everyone yes. had a mother. You know, everyone knows women. So misogyny is a very different sort of phenomenon. What what are you what are you up to these days? What are you what are you working on? Well, I'm always working on something, and I just finished a novel recently. That have been doing the finishing touches on a novel that will come out in November. So that's been in my mind a good deal. And what is really upsetting about it is this novel is set in the near future. I started writing it in 2011. And I finished it some years ago, but I put it aside in a drawer. And now, quite quite literally in a drawer. Oh, I I often do that. So so it doesn't stay on a computer screen, but you print it out and then you put it in a drawer. Well, I have I print out all the time, so right. I always have a manuscript. But ever since I've been writing novels, I tend to have work that's in another room that I I finished, I put away, and then I take it out after a year or two and revise it. So when I write something, I almost, unless it's a short story, I don't usually publish it right away. There's a lapse. So the problem with this is the dystopian vision that I had of an America that belongs to the privileged where we're graded by our color of our skin, where the national parks have been privatized. That vision of America now is almost just something right out the window. We can see right now in 2018 in America that we are in that world I was writing about. Well, people will think that I was writing a novel about today when actually when I was writing it, it was the future. So, so when you were saying what is disconcerting or depressing or difficult about it is that writing about the future as you thought you were doing is becoming harder and harder because it catches up to you so quickly. It caught up to me very quickly. And my novel, A Book of American Martyrs, was about the division yes. in America between people who sort of, we could say, are, are right-wing, conservative, evangelical Christians in contrast to secular, more educated, more liberal people. Uh, one is very pro-life and the other is pro-choice. So I was writing about that a few years ago, and then when a novel actually got published last year, it's right in the middle of this whole division of, of America, so that it was actually a worse America in reality than it was in my novel. I think we, we may have a fluke in, in America right now, that the election of Trump, well, first of all, he didn't really win the popular vote, and he may not even have won the election. It may, it may very easily have been rigged and doesn't really express the American people. But say he was elected, it may be a kind of fluke, and, and maybe it wouldn't happen again. There's a pr profound difference between Obama and Trump, so maybe there'll be a profound difference between Trump and his successor. Um, I, I like the word fluke. <laughs> yes. I, I think it's... Uh, what, what does it mean? I, I love it. 
Well, it means that this is something that happened because of a number of contingencies that might not happen again. For instance, let's just say there was a bias against Hillary Clinton because she is a woman. Yeah, so we subtract a whole lot of votes because of that. A bias against Hillary Clinton because there had been a, a, a campaign to vilify her for about 30 years. You subtract more votes. So, you know, there, it may not happen again with a different candidate running on the Democratic ticket. It may not. Um, what is the name, if I may ask, of the forthcoming book? Oh, it's called Hazards of Time Travel. Oh, how perfect. <laughs> what, a, what a perfect title, considering what you said about it so far. Yes, I was so excited to write this novel. I started it, as I said, in 2011, and I was working on it in a way a little different from my other writing. I've never written anything set in the future, and it was it, it allows you to be much more selective. You know, when you're writing about a, a fantasy world that doesn't actually exist, you're sort of selecting what to put in it. If you're writing about D Dublin in, in 1904, you have to put in it what what was actually there. I mean, you can't really leave out the major thing. But then everything sort of caught up with me because of the subsequent um, sense of repression now, uh, censorship, the feeling that the free the freedom of the press is under siege, that we have a president who does not have the interest of the country in mind. All these things are relatively new for us. What I call the Trump dark age. Mm. Fear, fear of the intellect, fear of science, fear of freedom, and, and so forth. One thing about the Trump dark age, it has really brought out the resistance. Many of us would be supporting Hillary Clinton. We probably wouldn't agree with everything she, she did, but we would be supporting her. Whereas with Trump, there's virtually nothing that he does that is in the interest of the country. And he's so anti-science. I mean, to be anti-art, I can understand that. But he's anti-science, and you, you can't really live in the, in the 21st century being anti-science. Well, it, it seems you can. <laughs> oh, no, not really. Those people who deny science, when they want the very best surgeon or medical technology... They believe in science. It's just some sort of a phony. So it might also, um, yeah. Joyce, it might also be a fluke. It might be a fluke, but they're in, in the pay of the corporations that are that are corrupting and contaminating the country. So they have to be, pretend to believe that they're against. You and, know, we, we were talking about um, the passage of time and... You, you know how much I admire, and I'll say it publicly, how much I admire... I, I think you've written the best book on boxing. Oh, thank there, you. There is. I think I've told you this, but I, I want it on record. I really think it is, um, and obviously um, I'm saying this knowing that there are some extremely famous people who have written on boxing... Uh, let us just mention Norman Mailer as one example, but oh. I, but I, but I think Norman, 
I think your book is is tremendous, and I'm I'm wondering. Well, I I, I have no idea if you reread yourself, and that's one question. But I'm also wondering how you how you think about boxing when you think about boxing today. Well, that's a good question. My my book on boxing has been modified and has had new editions. I've added a lot of material on Muhammad Ali, yeah. a lot on Mike Tyson. So the book that was originally published in 1986 or 1987 has really been changed a good deal. It's become a kind of memoir. Yes. started off as a memory piece because I was writing about my father, taking me to boxing matches yes. when I was quite a little girl, 10, 11, 12 years old. Yes. And I sort of mingled that in with seeing boxing matches of the time, like the famous Hagler Hearns match, which I wrote about. Yes. Then I met Mike Tyson and, and, and wrote about many, many of his fights, including his first heavyweight, uh, you know, when he won the heavyweight title. Yes. So I followed Mike Tyson for years. And it becomes a kind of memoir for me. So if I look at something I wrote that's nonfiction, I can pretty much relive what I was doing at the time, where I was living. It's a different kind of writing from fiction. Right. Um, and, and um, you know, the, the, the chapters particularly uh, on Tyson... Uh, touch me very much because he as you know he's someone i i i i truly had the pleasure i i of 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 speaking with and found Quite amazing. And, and yeah and found mike tyson to be one of the most um articulate um of course uh, violent but vulnerable and totally present uh, uh, subject to speak to. I mean, just extremely interesting. And, and, um. Very interesting. And I met Mike when he was only 18. I know, I, I, I mean. He was shy at that point. What was it like? Well, he was not used to being the center of attention. Um, he, I, I, I was one of the very first people to interview him. So you interviewed him before Cus died? No, Cus had just died. Just died. So he lost. He had just. He lost his, so to speak, father just at the moment when he spoke with you. I think a little bit before that, and I was actually in Customato's house. Wow, in upstate New York. In Catskill, in yeah. Catskill, New York. And so when I was interviewing Mike for Life magazine, I was in that house, and Mike took me through the house. He said. This was Cus's. This is Cus's chair at the table. This is where I sat, and it was so touching and and poignant because he had not become hardened to journalists. Now later on, as we know, there's a different Mike Tyson emerged. who was not so nice. Maybe you never saw him, and I never saw him, but he was there. So we never saw that that other Mike Tyson. You know, you don't get to be heavyweight champion of the world by being a nice person. Now, when when he was trained to be a boxer by Mike Tyson, he was trained to, to be very, very thorough in his defense, which means he shouldn't be he shouldn't have been hit at all. Right. He didn't get hit for a long time. He was just too fast. He was too smart. He could defend. He had a brilliant defense, and so he actually wasn't hit 
for a long time. That's interesting. The only time he got hit was when he hadn't trained for a fight. He just sort of gave up after after Customano died. He didn't take boxing so seriously, and he didn't train. And when a boxer stops training, he's going to get hit. But Mike Tyson is very, very clever, and he was always, or is always, he's aiming for a certain audience. Right. He's, I'm not saying that he's a con man or a manip- manipulator, but he's certainly a master of a situation. Right. He knows what to say to you and to me. He's very bright, and when I knew him a bit, he could mimic people. He was very good at mimicking white that's a, men. That's very interesting. Was, I mean, he has a demonic sense of humor. He's sort of like a stand-up comedian. Now, Tyson is a fascinating figure, and there isn't any way to to reduce or simplify him. That's really true. Are you still in touch with him? No, I haven't seen him for, for years. I was on a panel, or I moderated a panel when the documentary came out on, on Mike Tyson. Yeah. And I, I saw him then, and we were on the same you know, panel, he was supposed to take questions from the audience. But he seemed to be sedated. Right. He didn't he didn't have an alertness in his eyes. He, as we know from his autobiography and from much that's written about him, he has said he's bipolar and he takes medication. So you never know with somebody like that, are you meeting the person or are you meeting the drug? Oh, that's so interesting. You know, you turned me on to this, um, I don't know if it's a, a dissertation or, yeah. uh, but it's really interesting. And he, he quotes from, from a, a poem of yours. So, so you've written poems about boxing. Not many. I mostly just prose. But I did write about Tyson. Tyson when Tyson was young and he was a rising. And, and it, and it, provoked in you the desire to write a poem about him? I did. I wrote a poem called Undefeated Heavyweight, 20 years old. I think it's an... How long ago is that? <laughs> Do you have it in front of you? Yes, I, I hear Oh, well, we, we, we knew we would maybe speak about boxing because I think it it's something that interests us both for whatever reason. Um, I think for me it interests me because this man, Mike Tyson, is is fascinating. Um, I'd love you to read that poem. Oh, thank you, Paul. I have it right here. Oh, thank you. Um, this poem is in two stanzas. It's in two parts, I should say, one, part one and part two. And it's really addressed to the spectator, particularly the white spectator looking at a brilliant black boy boxer who's only 20 years old. Undefeated heavyweight, 20 years old, one. Never been hurt, never knocked down, or staggered or stunned or made to know there's a blow to kill, not his own. Therefore, the soul glittering like jewels worn on the outside of the body. Two. A boy with a death's head mask dealing hurt in an arc of six short inches. Unlike ours, his flesh recalls its godhead, if dimly. Unlike us, he knows he will live forever. The walloping sounds of his body blows are iron striking bone. The joy he promises is of a fist breaking bone. For whose soul is so bright, so burnished, so naked in display? 
All insults of this death's head, ancient tribal last week on the street, is redeemed in the taste of another's blood. You don't know, but you know. That's it. Wow. I'm so glad to 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 have you um, reading this poem because it it really brings it to life in a in a very powerful way to hear you read it. When was it written exactly? Well, that was when Mike was twenty years old, and he hadn't been even hit. He hadn't really been hit then. No, I don't think and so. Never knocked down. You see, if you're a really good boxer and fast on your feet, you're not supposed to get hit. The idea is not to get hit. <laughs> That's the main idea of boxing, of, of the art of self-defense. You don't get hit. But, of course, most boxers do get hit because they get older or slower. And so when Mike was that young, he'd never been hit. His whole tragic life was ahead of him, where he would be hit, knocked down, humiliated in front of the eyes of millions of people. I mean, when he was 20, he was invulnerable. He was invincible, but then as time went on, no, well, he gets knocked down. His fights with his fight with Evander Holyfield is disgraceful because he is losing the fight, and instead of getting knocked out or losing on points, he bit the ear of his opponent so that the fight would be stopped. In fact, he bit both ears of Evander Holyfield. I mean, that's a way of getting out of the fight by fouling committing a foul so the referee stops the fight, otherwise he was going to lose it. If Customato had been alive, then he would have been just filled with, with shame and indignation. So I think that Mike's life subsequent to that has been filled with a kind of self, maybe self-loathing. He knows that Customato would be very dismayed with him. Have you read his book, his second book on Customato? No, I read uh, Undisputed, yeah. Undisputed Champion. Because he's written a second book just about his relationship. Well, yeah. he doesn't really write those books, you know. He's, he works with somebody. Yes, with... Somebody helps him write the book. Ratso. Ratso helps him. He doesn't him. write the book. Yeah. I don't think any celebrities write their own books. Somebody's writing the books. What I noticed about Undisputed, which I reviewed in the New York Review of Books, there's a whole lot of Jewish humor in it, lots of Jewish jokes that I was wondering. Turns out that the ghostwriter or his collaborator is a Jewish, is Jewish. Right. So there's a lot of Jewish humor that was permeating the book. It's, it's kind of wonderful if you don't expect it to be true. You know, in, in, in the book, uh, mechanical, in that dissertation or that essay, um, yeah. leading, leading to, to, um, to your to your poem, the the writer says, "I've come around the idea that a close loss is a better story than a triumphant win," which I think is very interesting. Yes, well, maybe someday I'll meet that that writer. I I I I, th I think he should make a point of it. We'll 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 try and see if we can can find where he is and certainly have him listen to this. Um, what are you, if I may ask something quite different now, what, what are you, when you're not writing and, and finishing this novel about the future, which is really a, nearly about the present, um, what are you reading? 
Well, I'm always reading something for review. I, I review a lot for the New York Review yes, of Books. Yes, you do. And I'm also a juror for the Annisfield Wolf Awards. So we're reading a fic- fiction nominees, nonfiction, poetry, memoir. We have literally hundreds of books that we're reading. So I'm constantly reading newer, but then I'm also rereading classics because I'm teaching. Which ones do you go back to with, with great pleasure? Well, just recently I was teaching from Faulkner, and I taught a Scott Fitzgerald story. I sometimes teach a Jack London story. I, I'm be teaching a Ray Carver story. It's these are these are works of prose fiction that demonstrate the craft of fiction. So I can compare a Jack London story with a Hemingway story, with something by Ray Carver, and the students can see how a certain model is used and how it has evolved, and that's. That's very interesting. For instance, one of the major changes in literature over a period of time is, is acceleration and velocity. Right. Today, prose tends to move much faster, which isn't surprising. And that really started, I think, in, in American literature with Hemingway. You know, um, it, it brings back Calvino wrote about uh, Candide, Voltaire's Candide. He feels that um, all of Candide and perhaps literature from then on was propelled forward because Candide is hit in the behind and propelled into the story. Mm-hmm. There is, there is a, and then, and then Calvino, the last thing he ever wrote was the six memos for the next millennium, of which he only wrote five because then he died. And one of them, Joyce, I, I wonder if you know it, is called Velocity. No, I don't know that. Oh, I think it would interest you greatly because he talks about this, really what I, I, I feel has become a frenetic acceleration to the point that you know, to quote T.S. Eliot, we're, we're distracted from distraction by distraction. <laughs> yes, but, but in contrast to that, there are, there are memoirist works in autobiographical fiction today where it's very slow. You know, it's sort of the opposite, maybe a reaction to that. Who are you thinking about? Pardon me? Who are you thinking about? Who who is? But there's Rachel Rachel Cusk. Yes. Yeah, yes. Yes. Carl Knauf. Yes. I don't know how to pronounce his name? He's a Norwegian. Karlov Knausgard. Knausgard. Yeah. Yes. Well, he obviously is a contrarian in, in terms of this velocity because he moves very slowly and it's very interior. And of course, Proust was writing in that in that mode, very slow. There are excitements and there are dramas, but they're very, very slow and very psychological rather than dramatic. Joyce, it's such a pleasure to, to, to talk with you. I'd, I'd love you to leave us with your voice and a, a, a brief poem that I think appeared in the New York Review of Books. It's a, a short poem called Exsanguination. I'm going to have to find that because 
I, I don't know if I can find that. I'm out here in Berkeley, and I don't have... If you don't find it, I can read it, but I would much prefer to hear it in your own voice. Okay, I think I can find Okay, I have it here. Yes, I wrote this in January of 2016, I think. It was the last work of mine that Bob Robert Silvers at the New York Review ever accepted for publication because he died soon after. And I wrote it soon after our disastrous election of November 16, at a time when Trump had just been inaugurated. And, 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 and the title means what? Exsanguination, it means death, death by bleeding. Right. Bleeding out. Exsanguination. Life as it unspools evermore eludes examination. We wonder what is best, exsanguination in a rush or in 1,000 small slashes. It's been so wonderful to talk to you, Joyce. I really thank you. You, Paul. I, I thank you so very much and in, enjoy Berkeley. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.